I've been coming to IMS for a long time, and I love all the decorations around the building. And one of my favorite is the painting at the top of the main staircase that has a little saying, a little poem at the bottom of the painting, which says, try not to expect anything. In this way, everything will open up to you. And each time I go past that, it's such a wonderful reminder because it seems to touch the most profound truth at any moment. That if there's any way that I'm imagining what's going to happen in the future or how I'm going to be or what I want to have happen or all the kinds of expectations that arise frequently, moment to moment to moment. It's so wonderful just to be reminded again, just to put it down. Put down whatever I might be carrying in that moment. And these kind of reminders are so wonderful for us because it's so easy to forget. And I think when we consider our personalities, and who we think we are and how we project ourselves to the world, there's all kinds of fixed notions and fixed ideas about who we think we are and how we're projecting ourselves. And in any moment, in the seeing of that, you just say, right, put it down, let it go. I may not have to carry this idea of myself around with me, and let's just see what happens. When I first came into adolescence, when I was 13 years old, and I started getting all kinds of ideas about becoming somebody in the world, my first notion was to start picking up all the how-to books um, and, and I did. I think I, I read them probably for the next 10 years or more. You know, magazines and books on how to be popular and how to get a boyfriend and how to have a successful career, <laughs> how to be liked, how to make friends. You know, it was all this, you know, how, how can I be somebody? Who am I going to become? And how can I become the best person that I can be? And of course, all these writings were based on the person's value system who were writing the books and the magazines and the articles. You know, how I should be in the world. Who I should be in the world. And by the time I was 25, my life was in a complete mess. <laughs> I, was, I was probably as close to having a nervous breakdown as anybody could probably get. And it was quite clear that all of this visioning that I had done based on other people's values 
hadn't worked. And I needed to find another way, another route to some peace, to some happiness. So I began on the spiritual journey. And with my ego completely intact and the sense of I as strong as could be, I just took on a whole new set of ideals and a whole new set of who I thought I should be or who I thought I will become now that I'm a meditator, now that I am going to be a spiritual person. And so I just took on a whole new set of values. I thought that now I can be happy, I can become happy, I can become radiant, I might even become beautiful, I might be so calm in my life and and so graceful and unruffled by any situation and completely at ease in all conflict. And I would just (laughs) radiate love wherever I went. And (laughs) of course, each time I would see that this wasn't actually happening, in fact, as we probably all know who've been doing this for a while, the, the, the first many years are <laughs> a lot more chaotic and uh, uh, throw up all kinds of hidden things we didn't expect. So I had to finally get that maybe the teachings are not about becoming somebody and not about becoming a better person or becoming a good person or whatever that image is or that ideal. And 20 years later, down the line, I really see now that the personality isn't all that important, how I'm actually projecting myself in the world, what people think of me, the sense of approval, needing approval, that 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 isn't what the teachings are pointing to. It's not about becoming somebody at all. But But I find that I'm actually interested in something completely different. Something that doesn't have to do with the appearance of things or how I'm manifesting, or how other people are manifesting. Something which is much deeper, some deeper essence. Something that we might say is beyond the personality. And in the psychotherapeutic language, they have a word for it called transpersonal. Going beyond the personal, touching something other than this manifestation that we see both in ourselves and other people. It seems that over the years, what happens in, for me in the practice is a learning to be more comfortable with me as I am. So Christopher talked last night about a settling into 
use the words about settling into. It's a kind of settling into ourselves. So there isn't as much going out and drive and projection and ambition and becoming, but a kind of a settling back, a settling into, becoming more comfortable with what is, with this mind, with this body, with this sense of limitation. And if we, since we are in a body and we have a mind, there's going to be a sense of limitation. There's no way out of that. These bodies and these minds are limited. And if we're identifying with them at any level, then we're going to feel our limitation to a greater or lesser extent. The meditation instructions say again and again, be with things as they are. Just be with things as they are. Not trying to change, to manipulate, direct, to alter, but just settle into the way things are. So it seems very much what occurs over time of this kind of practice is learning to settle into things as they are, into ourselves as we are. It's like our direction, our aim, our intention changes direction reverses. Rather than going out and collecting, accumulating images and ideas and values, we turn inward. We settle back into ourselves just the way we are, without so much need for that to be different rather than this going outwards, searching for the answers outside of ourselves by what other people think or what other people say or getting approval, getting people to like us. But we go within. We turn within. And we discover the jewels that are right there. The jewels inside of us that are there without us having to change anything. This is where the teachings point. They point us back. Rather than becoming someone that fits our idealized image of who we think we should be, be as you are. Be as I am all the teachings and all the ancient traditions point to the same thing. Be as you are and find the jewel that is sitting there already right where you are. But as soon as this gets proposed that you are already where you need to be, the mind comes up and says, it's not enough. It can't be enough. It's not good enough. But then the question is, 
put back to you, can it be enough? Can what you perceive in your mind, what you perceive in your body, what you perceive in your heart, can it be enough? Because in some ways, this is the whole of the practice. It needs to be enough. Because each time we make it not to be, then we're back into our idealized ideas and our images and our projections. But again and again, we're asked to just come back into the enoughness of this moment, the enoughness of who we are right now. And when we do this, we do this again and again and again, what it does is it reinforces the wholesome pattern of loving. We're reinforcing that pattern of loving, allowing, being receptive to what we see in our experience. And we're not reinforcing the unwholesome pattern of fear because all the movement away from ourselves is, rises out of fear. Fear that we're not enough, that it's not okay, that we need to be different in some way. So we reinforce the pattern of loving whether it's the Vipassana practice or the metta practice, they all point to the same thing. But we don't reinforce the pattern of loving to become a better person so that we'll be liked or we'll get approval or we'll be successful in the world. We'll get more material things. If I'm a more loving person, maybe I'll get more things. It's not for that motivation. In fact, as we do this, the motivation shifts. The motivation changes. Because we do it, we reinforce the pattern of loving to bring an end to fear. So that we're not reinforcing fear in our life. And this becomes very clear as we look into our experience what the difference is between bringing metta or bringing love to our experience and bringing fear and aversion to our experience. When we reinforce this pattern of loving, what we're doing is allowing ourselves to look at ourselves completely. Because when we're fearful, of ourselves and we're fearful of what we see, we, we can stop, we can hide, we can go into denial, we can shut off from ourselves. But if our intention is towards loving, then we can start to look at all aspects that we may not have looked at before to really shine the light, the light of love on all parts of ourselves. Here's an, an, a poem that was written by a 10th century 
great Japanese woman poet, an Enlightenment poem. She wrote in the 10th century, watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. Her enlightenment poem, no part left out. Love shining completely, there's no fear. Fear and love can't stand side by side unless we're bringing love to the fear. And then it doesn't have the power, it can't, take the, it can't have the grip that it has when it's not seen or when there's aversion or, or one is in struggle or in conflict with the fear. But when there is love, it starts, everything loses the power that it has, the grip that it has. I was just here last fall on the three-month course that happens here every year. And for two months, the first two months of the three months, I was practicing what's called the Brahma Viharas. And the, the basis of that practice is metta. And what that means when one does it in an intensive way is from the moment one wakes up in the morning until the moment one goes to sleep at night, one keeps repeating the phrases that I went over the other day. May I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be safe and protected, may I feel ease of well-being. And the, the practice is just staying one-pointed on these phrases from morning till night. And this, I had never done this before. <laughs> and it was very, very interesting. All the, all the, more, more, I think in reflection, after having done it, more uh, insights have come, through, and the revelations have come through the practice that I did. But one of the most interesting things, and by the way, it was sometimes directed towards myself and quite a lot of the time directed towards others as it broken up in different categories of people. And the times that I was both directing towards myself and sometimes directing towards others, the very interesting thing that I saw was that by expressing this greater wish or this hope that may I be happy and may I be safe and may I know joy, there was the continual awareness of the absence of that. That, in fact, I wasn't so happy a lot of the times and I wasn't feeling joy and I wasn't uh, uh, wanting to do the practice, some resistance to practice. And so, so it was very interesting that by doing the metta, what it actually did was 
create a kind of a mirror effect where it reflected back to me right where I am. Which is, of course, what I, what I and most people don't want to see. <laughs> we don't want to see so clearly right where we are. There's always a, a certain hope that we are different <laughs> or we're, we're much better or uh, more loving or more capable of, of, of being able to be loving and caring. And so there is this, this kind of gap, you know, this, this wish that I had for myself and for others and very beautiful and very, very caring and loving, and yet the reality of right where I am. My own fear or my own aversion, my own sense of limitation. And that became what I had to deal with with Mecca. Could I allow all that to be there and send myself metta right there, right with that? Not that that had to be different. Not that I had to overcome my resistance, overcome my fear, overcome my not liking what I was seeing in myself. But could I hold that with metta? So interesting how it was demanding me to do that right in the moment without anything being different, without me having to change myself in any way, without me having to become a more loving person. But that the personality was manifesting in that particular way. And it would, of course, as you see, would change from morning till night, go through all kinds of swings and changes and moods and shifts. But to bring the attitude of metta right to that seeing. What a powerful practice, a powerful attitude. So it seems that the only thing that can bridge that gap, the gap between our wish for what we hope for ourselves, or what the potential wish that we have for ourselves, and what we truly see as the reality in this moment, the only thing that brings those two together is the metta. Is holding it all embracing it all with love. Otherwise, the fear gets reinforced. The patterns of fear. What we call in spiritual language the ego. That ego which is the interfering illusion (laughs) that manifests as fear. So for me, it seems that this is so much of the practice. Moment to moment to moment, can I bring this attitude to what I see in myself? Can I be allowing 
Can I be receptive? Can I be open? Can I not cut off, shut down, close off from what I see as the truth of myself? Reinforcing the wholesome patterns of loving. So while I was on the retreat, this koan or this, this question kept coming back to me, well, how, how do I hold myself with love? If what I have to do is hold myself with love, what does it really mean? What does it mean to do that in a real practical way? And in my reflection, On this, I reflected on a few different things that feel certainly right for me, and I'd like to share them with you. They're not so, they're nothing nothing new or exotic. I mean, the same things you hear all the time. But yet, putting them in the frame of, of reinforcing patterns of loving. The first is patience. Having patience with what I see, with what you see in yourself. And knowing and trusting that there is some process unfolding on a deeper level, much beyond my control. Something is revealing itself. It may not be the way I like. I may not like what I see. It may not even make any sense. It may seem completely irrational but something is unfolding. And can I be patient with that? Patient with what I see revealing itself, unfolding. Patience means a gentleness, a tenderness, a kindness towards what I see. So when I see the aversion, or I see the fear, or I see the agitation arising, okay, that's just going on now. Can I be gentle? Can I be tender? Rather than beating myself and clubbing myself for what I see. The second is being realistic being realistic, that I might have these great ideals for myself or these great wishes for myself, but is it realistic that I would be there right now? Or would I have that right now? Because these standards of perfection or these standards, these ideals that we hold for ourselves become clubs. They become, they actually (laughs) can feel solid, like we're, you know, we beat ourselves over the head when we see that we're not meeting up to our standards. Why can't I be more loving? Why can't my heart be more open? Why do I keep acting like a fool? You know, and just hitting ourselves, clubbing ourselves, which are only our standards, our ideals. So being realistic, recognizing I am where I am. I am where I am, and that's the truth. It's really coming to the truth, the truth of this moment, 
being with the truth of who I am, of who you are. The third one is being disciplined. That actually being disciplined is a way of being loving. Because if I am aware of these habits repeating themselves again and again and again, and I'm not doing anything about it, I'm just being lazy or I'm being, oh, well, that's just the way it is. (laughs) I'm being too lax. I'm saying, oh, I'm never going to change, so what difference does it make? You know, I'm just stuck with this. There's nothing I can do. That's not a wise or loving attitude because we see that we can take steps, we can take action to bring about change in our life. But we don't do that out of fear. We don't take the steps out of aversion and and hatred towards ourselves. But we take steps forward out of love, out of care, because we know that there is a potential there for, for more, for being more. So it's not denying that, but it's taking the steps with love and kindness. So we were disciplined, not being lazy, so that these painful habits or these these habitual tendencies we see in ourselves just don't take over. Because they're, they have so much power, they have a lot of force, and they do require firmness. And sometimes just saying, No, I'm not going to allow my mind to keep going with this obsessive thought. I am going to come back to the breath. I am going to feel the presence of myself walking. I am going to listen to the birds. And sometimes it takes that kind of discipline or that kind of perseverance to counteract these painful habits that we see in ourselves. But we do it with tenderness. And we learn the difference between that movement away with tenderness as opposed to the club. (laughs) You better do this or else. And so in that, in the discipline, one thing we watch for is the condemning mind. Is that mind that the thoughts that arise that say we're bad, we're wrong, we're worthless. You're never going to get anywhere. <laughs> Give up. There's no point in even doing this. You know, just, just habit, habitual patterns of mind. And the attitude of metta comes through. You just see it. All right, that's the condemning mind. You don't have to identify with it. I don't have to believe it. You can come back to that heartful attitude that we know, that we've touched, that we know is true. Another reflection on being more loving is staying in touch with our vulnerability 
And so often when we start to really feel that, that fragility and that vulnerability of our being, the habit can be to, okay, no, this isn't okay. You know, I've got to be strong. I've got to, you know, keep myself together. I've got to stay in control. But yet, I'm sure we've all had those moments where that vulnerability or that fragility that we felt has been really tender and really beautiful and not something we wanted to counteract right away. And so allowing ourselves to feel that vulnerability in, in, in making more and more space for that vulnerability so that we can actually feel it when we're with other people, not only when we're alone with ourselves, but the possibility, can we allow that vulnerability to be exposed to another person and say, it's all right, I'm feeling vulnerable right now. I'm feeling fragile right now. That's my truth. It's okay. And we all know that when somebody shares from that place, it touches something in us. No, it's something that we actually like when somebody's able to reflect back to us their vulnerability because then it gives us permission to do the same. And then it's like, wow, we can be vulnerable together. <laughs> we can hang out here together. You know? we, can, we can feel safe together because we're not going to fight with that person to be different. We're going to say, yeah, it's okay. You can expose your vulnerability. And what a gift to give to somebody, since our culture is so intent on naming that vulnerability weak or unworthy. And so for us to even begin to discern the difference between when we're vulnerable and when we're feeling weak, you know, or if there is any difference. You know, when do we have to pull ourselves up and get it together and move ahead? Or when do we just say, yeah, I don't, this is fine. This is what I need right now, just to really feel this vulnerability. What a, what a gift of love, both to ourselves and to other people. Reinforcing these patterns for ourselves. but not to improve ourselves. Not so that we become better, but more to discover our true essence, to reinforce the truth of our being, which is love, which is caring, which is compassion, to really discover this true essence so that we're not so controlled by these negative patterns of mind. Letting 
go of these ideas of who we think we are, returning again and again to that quiet place, that tender place. Each time we see ourselves assert our personalities, assert that sense of who we are, can we trust into something else? Let go into something other. When we let go of these fixed ideas of who we think we are, who are we? (laughs) Who am I? Who am I? Who am I before the thought, I am depressed? I am a person who doesn't do well in relationships. Or I get angry a lot. Or I have an eating problem. Who am I before that thought? before the construction comes into being, before the house is built. Who am I? Who are you? Can we throw out these standards for how to be Throw out these criteria, these references for what we use to be somebody. Can we stand referenceless with no imagined center? No imagined center. Then where are we? Who are we? Can we stand there, not knowing, not knowing who I am, who you are, but knowing that this is true. This is more true than our projections, our ideas, our beliefs. A haiku from 15th century Zen master Dojen. Coming, going, the water birds, don't leave a trace, don't follow a path. What's there? It's quite fascinating because the more I stand referenceless, the more this personality is actually quite awesome. Because what is it? (laughs) Where does it come from? What keeps it going? (laughs) You know, it seems as if we all have our own flavor, no matter what we do. We all have our own flavor, and it's so exquisite. It's so beautiful. 
just like every flower that we see has its own fragrance, its own colors, its own shape. Every bird has its own song, its own flight, its own colors. Every tree has its own personality, its own flavor. It doesn't have to be different. It's like we can celebrate this diversity. We can enjoy the differences that we project in the world. And the more that we disidentify with our personalities and not become so concerned about what people think and what I'm projecting, it's like we can actually celebrate these personalities more, both our own and other people's personalities. And this, then life starts becoming very rich, very joyful. People don't have to change. People don't have to be different. I don't have to be different. Then we can play in this, we can celebrate in this. But it's just how it is. It's just how it is. As we go deep into ourselves, deep into that which is beyond the personality, we start to touch something, touch something which is much greater, much more powerful, some deep essence, something that is quite vast, something that is boundless, something without limits. This is our true nature, our true essence. And the personality just becomes fairly irrelevant because we know something else. We've touched something else. And this is really what shines through most of the time anyhow. You know, but we, we usually think that mo- what, what people see is just our neurosis, you know. <laughs> they think, we think that people can see what's going on in the inside. <laughs> but usually what people see is just this beautiful spirit. Certainly if one's eyes are open. Now, we don't see all the, the neurosis manifesting, the anxieties and the fears and the, and the concerns and the self-consciousness. And, but we see this beautiful light shining through. And sometimes it's easier to see it in others than it is in ourselves. But hopefully in seeing it in others, it acts as a reminder or reflection that it's there in us too. So we touch something deep as we go more and more and more into ourselves. This is from uh, one Tibetan master, Kokushi. There is a reality even prior to heaven and earth, 
Indeed, it has no form, much less a name. Eyes fail to see it. It has no voice for ears to detect. To call it mind or Buddha violates its nature, for it then becomes like a visionary flower in the air. It is not mind nor Buddha, absolutely quiet and yet illuminating in a mysterious way. It allows itself to be perceived only by the clear-eyed. It is Dharma truly beyond form and sound. It is Tao having nothing to do with words. Wishing to entice the blind, the Buddha has playfully let words escape his golden mouth. Heaven and earth are ever since filled with entangling briars. O oh, my good, worthy friends gathered here, if you desire to listen to the thunderous voice of the Dharma, exhaust your words, empty your thoughts, for then you may come to recognize this one essence. So the teachings point to this, not our personalities becoming better, going beyond, going beyond, going beyond becoming, so that we're no longer interested in becoming anything or anybody, but we're interested in knowing who we truly are. When all is let go of, we drop into the heart, into the core of our being, and we find that still place within. And there, from there, all falls into place. Let's sit for a few moments together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.